Good afternoon. Welcome to another panel. Uh, again, it's a media panel, and I think another very important panel about what's happening in the media, around the, in the media space uh, in the Czech Republic, but also in Europe and around the globe. I'm very happy that uh, uh, our invitation was accepted by several very, very distinguished guests. I will start with Erin McLaughlin. Erin McLaughlin is a a uh, young woman, but still seasoned journalist uh, for CNN International, uh, based in London. Uh, we have uh, uh, president of the Czech national television, uh, Mr. Petr Dvořák, a long-time top media manager in the Czech Republic. And we have Mr. Jim Clancy, uh, one of the most, uh, I would say, accomplished and experienced journalists I've ever worked or met. Uh, and uh, so I'm sure... Uh, we will learn a lot of interesting things today and, and uh, maybe come up with some ideas how to solve the current uh, issues. Um, I will start with Erin, you know, just kind of to introduce what possessed you to become a journalist? How did you become a journalist? How did you get into this position? Well, I, because I'm sorry, I, I don't think you studied journalism. How did you get no, into this? No, I, I actually studied business, but I have pretty much always wanted to be a, a journalist uh, from the age of nine years old. I, um, my mom had, what's one of her favorite stories, is a, as a nine-year-old, I was making my own newspapers on the history of Iraq at the time, and, <clears throat> and I went door to door in my neighborhood selling subscriptions to the newspaper to my neighbors, and then the neighbors complained when I failed to deliver the subsequent issues that they had ordered. <laughs> so I pretty much always wanted to be a journalist. When I, I went to college, university, I made a point of studying business because business, in my view, made the world go round, and it seemed like a really good backbone to journalism, a good complement to journalism, but that's always been sort of my driving passion. Mr. Dvořák, what drew you to, to media? Why did you become a media uh, executive? Why did you even wanted to be in media? Uh, I first came to media in 2002, uh, where I was responsible in the biggest Czech uh, investment group, PPF. I was responsible for there for media investment, and that year uh, we acquired the majority stake in the main commercial TV group in the Czech Republic called TV Nova. And after a year, I became the general director of this, uh, of this television. In 2005, we sold the station to the CME. CME was the American, American investor uh, being listed on NASDAQ. And I got the offer uh, to stay with uh, the television and to continue to work as the director general. So I decided to stay. I stayed there until 2010. And then I left after eight years, and I won uh, the tender for the position of the director general of the public TV of the Czech Republic, Czech TV, in 2011. And there I am since, since then for seven years. Jim, uh, why would anybody want... How, how long have you been a journalist? How many... Should we... Since about 1966. Why... <laughs> I was born in 64. Uh, why would anybody want to be a journalist? Why did you well, want to you be? know, it wasn't that I wanted to be a journalist. You know, I didn't, like most people, I went to the University of Denver, and like most of us, I had not a clue what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, the 1960s, and you know how things were, it reminds me of it around here at Melting Pot, with all the girls with flowers in their hair. It's the way it was. And... So I went to the radio station on campus and I said, I want to be a DJ. I want to play the rock and roll. And they said, well, guess what? You know, the list is so long, you'll never get up the list before you graduate. They said, but, but if you agree to work in the news department where nobody wanted to work, they said, if you agree to work in the news department, we'll push you up the list. And I took the bait. It was a cruel, mean, and evil trick. I never got out of the news department, and I never became a DJ. Listen, I, I want to stay with you. This was, a, as you said, a long time ago. Um, how did the media space change? You know, I call this a uh, 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 war zone of the 21st century. Do you agree? How would you describe the climate in media in the United States then and in the world and now? 
Look, when you look at television, when you turn on the evening news, first of all, what do you hear? You know, they are not playing rights of spring. They're playing some military. Here comes tension, here comes controversy. If you don't see this, you and your entire family could die. This kind of, you know, they set the stage for it. Controversy has always been a part of production in news. And, and many news directors will tell you, you need controversy, you need the clash of ideas. And the more profound, the better. And I think that's always been with the news industry. But it has been taken to lengths that go far beyond just production. And what I'm talking about is in the United States, Ted Turner, and I had the privilege, uh, I've seen him just not that long ago, a few weeks ago, to shake his hand and thank him for my 34 years with CNN. And he asked me, he says, how old are you? He says, I'm 80. And I said, I'm 70. And he said, oh, 70 is far too young to retire. <laughs> I'm not retired. But what was happening was Ted Turner not only proved that you could do news 24 hours a day on television, he proved you could make money doing it. And that was the other side of the sword, huh? Because when people saw you could do that, they saw that we can actually bring a political benefit that has a political payoff. And we had the birth of Fox News that grew, it was literally the former head of the GOP, the Republican National Committee, Roger Ailes, founded Fox News, put up the banner, you know, fair and balanced, and all it did was carry forward the talking points of the GOP. It became a political mouthpiece. And I think that since those days, since its rise, we have seen a profound split in news. And I think that the world watches. I know the world watches. There's 24-hour news networks now everywhere imitating what Ted Turner did. But what I, when I turn on the television today, it's far from the dream that we all had. Very far indeed. You know, the, today if you turn on television in the United States, the 24-hour news channels, I guarantee, and you watch them faithfully, I guarantee you, you will not know what the fuck is going on in the world. I would like to go to Erin now. Uh, he was talking about television. I know that you are quite uh, savvy on uh, social media, very literate on social media. Uh, tell me what's happening. How is, what is the current kind of atmosphere or status on social media? Is it a war zone or is it not a war zone? And, and if you can talk a little, bit, a little bit about this. Well, I think it depends on the context. On the one hand, you have tools such as Twitter and Facebook. You have a constant stream of information at your fingertips. You have a situation in which something could happen in a far-off place in the world, and you're immediately getting, in real time, facts and images and accounts from where uh, where that event is happening. We have more information now than we've ever had ever before. But at the same time, there are, there are, there are repercussions for that. There's a downside for that. Um, as an example, um, I was in Paris in January, uh, tasked with covering our, uh, CNN's Paris Bureau. And it was a Saturday, and it was a yellow vest protest. And I had never covered the yellow vest protest before. I go out with my team. Um, it was a cold day, and uh, the, these protests had been going on for weeks, and numbers had significantly, the turnout numbers had significantly dropped off. Um, so I'm standing at one of the starting points. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Yellow Vest protests. It's not something that's organized. It's organized on social media, effectively. So no one really knows where the protest begins and where it ends. It's kind of just this moving movement uh, on the ground. Um, so we went to one of the starting points that was traditionally a starting point in weeks past. We arrived, uh, and I arrived to, actually, there were, there were very few people there. There were very few protesters, yellow vest protesters. I'm thinking, okay, well, it's cold. They've been doing this for weeks. Everyone's exhausted. So I just happened to tweet out a picture of the five protesters that were standing there at something that was traditionally a starting point for the yellow vest protest. And I didn't think anything of it because, you know, I'm a journalist on the ground simply reporting what I was seeing. All of a sudden, 
my phone just starts blowing up. My Twitter account just went mental. Now keep in mind, my tweet was just of the picture of the five guys standing there on the corner. No hashtags, no nothing, nothing to cause attention, not, nothing to raise alarm. But before I knew it, it was, it was gone, it, my tweet had gone viral. I was getting abuse, I was getting feedback from the Netherlands, from Germany, um, calling me fake news, juxtaposing the photo I had taken to uh, a photo of this protest from months prior, when it was really kicking off, saying, this is what's going on today, your fake news. And I was blown away. I was blown away. And that is a great example of how genuine information, which I was sharing in an innocent, I thought at the time, way on a Saturday morning in Paris, went absolutely out of control and became a part of a disinformation campaign. Mr. Dvorak, what is the climate in the media in the Czech Republic at the moment? And also, if you can, after that, show the presentation about the situation in Europe. The, the climate is the same, uh, and it reflects the fight, which uh, you are mentioning there. there. There is not as much the fight within one sort of media, because in Europe, uh, we basically try for the media to be balanced and independent. But there is the fight between the old-style media and between the new, new media. And uh, the social media made the market much more fragmented. And the social media also made the market much more uh, unpredictable. And now, uh, for the people, it's much harder, although they have much more sources of information, it's much harder to know what's going on, because they get the information from different sources. And to find out what's really going on, and if it's true or not, if it's fake or not, uh, it needs some sort of knowledge, how to use the media, and this should be the panel about. How to use the media in the current times, and how to use it in a way that you will finally know what's going on. And I would like to just to present you uh, just a few slides from the research which was done by the European Broadcasting Union. European Broadcasting Union is the union of uh, public TVs or public radios. It has approximately 74 members from 52 countries, and they did a research uh, how the people trust the media, because I feel the trust is today the most important thing within news. So if you can... Okay, uh, if you look today uh, for the trust in the media, you, you see that the traditional media, mainly TV and radio, are still the most trusted media uh, in Europe. The index, which you see here, is calculated in a way how many people don't trust the media, deducted from the number of people who trust the media. And you see that this, the curve for radio and TV is pretty stable. Even the press, which was announced to die, is going up. Where you see the main drop is the drop of the social media. And there is the conflict, because the people does seem that they don't believe to, to, uh, to the social networks, but in the same time, they use them more and more. So although they don't trust the social media, they use it much more than in the year 2013. Uh, if you look how the people get news, again, you see that the overall trust in news dropped a little bit from 44 to 42%, but the trust in social media, if you read news through social media, the trust is much lower. And this is the, this is the, uh, this is the picture of Europe where you see that almost in 88% of the countries of Europe are the social networks, the least trusted media overall. <clears throat> on, the, on the other side, if you, take, uh, if you take the public media, the public media belong in 16 out of 26 markets, they belong to the most trusted news brands. And that's why I believe that the trust is the big measure which we need to take into account for the future. Uh, what is very interesting, 
Uh, that this is the statistics, which I don't want to go into the detail, but the main, uh, the main statement is on the left side. The more public, public media news are trusted, the less the fake news are perceived as a problem. So if the people have a source of media which they trust, they can recognize much easily if there are fake news or not. And if there is more trust in news as overall, then this is good also for the democracy. So in any country which is democratic or should be democratic, the politicians should care about media, which we will hear in, in a few minutes that it's not the case in many countries. And this is, uh, this is showed here that there are political pressures overall. This is not only political pressures in states. This is not only political pressures in the Czech Republic, but it's overall uh, the best situation with political pressure is in Scandinavia and in Germany. But in almost all the other countries, there is at least medium political pressure. The highest is in Greece, uh, which, uh, fi uh, which finished uh, with the cancelling of the public media as such. And again, if the political pressure is low, then the people feel that the media is free. And this is the statement which we should keep in mind for the further discussion. Thank you. Jim, I want to ask you, uh, this, drop in, this drop in trust in media, I mean, what do you think is causing this? And I will also ask you a similar question after this. What is the... There's a lot of reasons, I, I think, for a loss in trust. There has been a shift from old media to new media, and some of it is the fault of journalists. There's no doubt about it. A lot of it is because we have... People are now turning to social media. They're turning to their phones to get their news, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook, wherever it might be. And as you can see from those graphs, people have now, they have an understanding. What I'm getting off the internet, you know, is not necessarily true. I mean, it's like when President Trump said that, you know, thank God for our patriotic troops in the Revolutionary War that we were able to maintain control of the airports. Uh, they didn't have airports. Uh, so, you know, it's the understanding that there's a lot of material out there that needs to be filtered and you have to be careful. I mean, people take photos of pipeline explosions that were caused by someone stealing gasoline, say, in Nigeria, and then they will republish it on the internet and say, this was a massacre carried out by Nigerian troops against the Fulani people, you know completely distorting the meaning and the origin of the photograph. And, but people have become aware that it's out there, so they basically have very little trust in what's going on. But I think the larger issue that we as journalists have to address is the original one. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What do we need to do? And there's a very simple cure for what ails a lot of the journalism out there. And it's adhering to the precepts of fundamental journalism, investigative journalism, all journalism is investigative. I mean, you're looking at something, right? Uh, it's not the journalist's job to stand up and say, she says that it's not raining, but he says that it is raining. You know, there's two different points of view here that I've got to cover. That's not the journalist's job. The journalist's job is to stick his head out the window and see if it's raining. See what the truth is. And when you return to the ideas, the, the fundamental pillars, which are data, interviews, and observation, where you have things that you can cite as a basis for what you're writing, you've solved a lot of the problem. And, and one of the key things is, what I have noticed about a lot of reporting where it went downhill, is of putting opinion in there. And there's a thing called line-by-line line editing, where the journalist looks at their report line, sentence by sentence, and they ask, do I have the observation, the interview, or the data to support that? And if I don't, it goes out. It doesn't belong there. And that's what journalists themselves can do to increase public trust. You mentioned that uh, a situation that happened. 
that assault that happened on you in Paris because of absolutely innocent, do you think that would happen 10 years ago? And if not, what has changed? You know, wh where, where is this kind of aggressivity or drop, uh, the drop in trust in media is coming from? What do you think from your experience as a journalist? I, I think absolutely not. That would not have happened 10 years ago. Twitter wasn't being used in that way. Neither was Facebook. It wasn't seen at that point as a tool for disinformation as it is now. Uh, your presentation, though, at least raises confidence that people in Europe are catching on to that and then thinking twice about information that they're getting from social media platforms that's unvetted. In terms of where journalism is going wrong, I, I think that the rise of online journalism, I, I, I agree with you, but I, I also think the rise of online journalism, the fact that news organizations can now put articles and news stories up and understand exactly how many people are clicking on that article and how long they're staying on the page. They can measure all of that and then monetize it uh, through advertisement. It, Journalism, journalists have always had this um, impulse to try and sensationalize, to try and sell more newspapers. The fact that that can be measured feeds into that impulse. Um, I'll Let me disagree with you just <laughs> on one point, because yeah. we work for the same organization. And it's well, well and good to say, you put up a great news article and then you track how it's followed. If it was used like that, that would be one thing. But let me tell you how it's really used. Who are we as journalists? We are the ones who decide what the public should know. We make editorial decisions. We're editing the news. We decide what story to cover and what story not to cover. We are making fundamental decisions that should affect how we are perceived. And the problem with the clicks method is that you go to the morning meeting at CNN or any news organization, and let's hear first from social media. Oh, Kim Kardashian spoke way leading in the clicks this morning. And, you know, some editor says, we've got to get somebody on that story, Kim Kardashian. And you see that news comes down to being, well, what do the 15-year-olds want to see? The journalist has to say, what do the 15-year-olds and everyone else need to see? Yes, but, but, <laughs> but also I think part of the problem is that it also drives the, uh, the, 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 the impulse to sensationalize. And I think as journalists we have to be very careful to avoid sensationalizing our stories. I'll give you an example of that. Early, in early June I was assigned a story of uh, a lesbian couple that was on a bus in Camden at two in the morning, the start of Gay Pride Month there in London, considered one of the most tolerant cities in the world, and they were attacked by a group of men in the middle of the night, one of them beaten in the face, their cell phone, their purse was stolen. One of the women had the courage to take a photo of herself on the bus shortly after the attack, her face bloodied, and she posted it online. She posted it on Facebook with a detailed account of what happened. So I'm assigned the story, I'm reading her account, and then I'm cross-checking to see how other journalists are representing this truly horrific story that does not need to be sensationalized at all because the, the photo speaks for itself and what happened to these women, the verbal abuse that they suffered, spoke for the story itself. You, you didn't need, it, it didn't need anything more. But what quickly developed among mainstream media, reputable journalists that I saw online, was the women were beaten because these men asked them to kiss. And because they refused to kiss on a bus in the middle of the night, that's why they were beaten up. Which is not at all what happened. These women were verbally abused, and one of them challenged the men on the bus, and then they were beaten and then mugged. But it was a sexier story to say that they were beaten up because they refused to kiss. So that's an example of an impulse that anyone who read her account, and I spoke to her after, anyone who read her account would know that that wasn't true. And yet that narrative developed in the mainstream media. You know, media or individuals in media such as you are not attacked, unfortunately, in these days only by some lunatics. Uh, who are using Twitter or social media, but they are attacked by, by politicians, they are attacked by heads of states, you know. I would like you to uh, tell me, Mr. Dvořák, you know, what are the challenges public television, Czech public television is facing from the, the political side, from the presidential office, from the, from the parliament? 
We are in a situation which we never faced before. When I joined Czech TV in 2011, it was unbelievable that somebody like a president or a prime minister or a minister or any politicians would attack public media in a way they are doing today. The problem is that they first, some of the politicians, even on the top level, they just based their political program on the attacks to, the, to our media. And one of the reasons is that they have their own media. They have their own sources where they present the information in a way they like. And we don't do it. You, those of you who were here in the previous panel, you, you heard our journalists, which do, which have principles, which have uh, procedures, which have editor, editorial control. And sometimes the politicians use or misuse the word, uh, the word fake news to the information they don't like. It's simple as that. And president started to accuse the Czech television already in his first term. And, you know, he, he used even the attacks to the Czech television. Can we have the, I'm, I keep going, can we have the picture of Mr. President, please? <laughs> no, we, can, we can go ahead. I'm Only sorry. to those who don't recognize him, right? <laughs> uh, but this is not, this is not the, only, the, the only political person which attacks us since uh, many years. There are political parties who basically have their program to, in attacking our news and our news crews. And there is, even there are examples of our prime minister telling that our journalists are corrupted, corrupted trash. And this is the situation which is hard to face because you cannot win this fight by using the arguments or by using the facts. How, this is how much of that do you believe is influenced by, say, what's happening in the United States? I think, you know, this is quite the same. And they have How much do you think it's influenced? Do you think it's happening because of what's happening in the United States? Or is it, is it uh, a byproduct of the situation there? I, th I think that the, the example makes, you know, makes the way. So the more they see it's happening in the States, the more they feel they can, they can even do here and they can even overcome uh, that situation. And we have very limited, limited means how to protect it. Because, you know, if we are, and that was not the case in the, in the past, if we are part of the political discussions, we cannot be the one side of the discussion. We cannot tell that, you know, this party which immediately, which attacks us all the time, we will not invite them into our broadcast. Peter, does, does the governing party feel like they should have ownership? Yes, of course. And, I mean, they, and they have good examples around in, in, in the countries so around us. So they don't us. see the public as the owners. They see no, themselves No, no, no. They, they see themselves as being the owners of, of the media. Not only us as TV, but also the Czech radio. But we are the most accused media uh, in the country. And they believe that they own the television and they need some, they, and the television is, the, or our news is there just to give them peace for work. That was, just, that was I, the I, claim just, which we heard. Let me, let me get a little data here. How are your ratings compared to their channel? Uh, In other words, how many people are watching your nightly news compared to how many people are watching the nightly news? Commercial? On the commercial uh, yeah, we, channel of the governing party. Uh, I give you some figures. The overall market share which we have is 30%, and we are the mostly watched TV group in the country. The second mostly watched TV group in the country is the commercial group called TV Nova. If we take the ratings only of the news, they are higher, but we are at like 70% of their ratings. And we have a news channel, which is the only one on the market, CT24, and the news, mar uh, the news channel has the market share of like 5%, which is the highest share in whole Europe compared to the to the same type of channels. So we are quite strong, and this is the reason why if, if we present some problems of the today's government or today's president, the people hear it. And yeah, that's, so there's too that's, many people watching yes, maybe for too the many, likes of may, those. Yeah, maybe too many people watch. Who yeah. don't like what they hear. And you know, exactly. when you hear this, I don't like the term fake news. You know why? If it's news, 
it can't be fake. Now, it can be misinformation, which means incompetent reporting because you didn't get the story right. Or, or it can be disinformation, which is purposeful propaganda that is designed to misinform or to, you know, mold your opinion around false ideas. Uh, they're different, but that's what's going on. And I fully agree. Uh, you know, fake news is the term it, which we shouldn't be using. Whenever you hear fake news, which it just means, I don't like that story. Don't no, tell it. No, this is just propaganda in the past and this information for the future. And the, pr the only problem of this disinformation today is that there are much more distribution channels how you can get this disinformation to the people first. And second, this is the scope and then the speed because you can get the information to the people in a second, which was not the case in the, in the past. You know, I just want to put some context for you two, for Erin and Jim, of that, of that, of that photo, you know. Can we, if, if we can get yeah. that photo again, if there is somebody I, I there. I want some context, because this, no. is, this appears to be showmanship. No, this is a president of our country. It's, a, it's a, <laughs> and, and uh, he attacked, he attacked media before, and when, during one of his tours of the country, when he visited one of the Czechoslovak, uh, Czech districts, they gave it to him, the local government gave it to him as a gift. Uh, makeshift, uh, makeshift uh, wooden gun, which says for journalists. The, the sign on it says for journalists. He also, when he was uh, visiting China, um, where he's claiming that he's traveling to China to learn how the Chinese, uh, to learn from them how the Chinese stabilize the society. Uh, when he was walking, he had a summit there with President Putin and, and he was, um, when he was walking, the camera mic caught Czech president saying that there are too many journalists that should be liquidated. And it, You're lucky because when <laughs> Trump went to meet with Putin, we didn't find out anything they said. Well, this is what I want to ask, you know, like, but this is not the, uh, only the Czech Republic, you know, it's also, it's also United States and, you know, Trump. This is a problem around the world. It is a problem that we share as journalists and you as audiences and readers and viewers, we all share and we're constantly looking for ways to challenge it. But when you take an entity like Czech television that is trying to cover the news, you have no idea how small the budgets are and how big the needs are. If you're gonna tell the stories that are vitally important to the people of a country, you're gonna spend every dime you get. Now, the answer, unfortunately, in the United States has been they just wanna cut the budget of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and PBS, that's our equivalent to Czech television. PBS still does a grand job of covering the news and you can still get a broader perspective on different stories than you're ever going to see on the commercial 24-hour news networks. I mean, it's just a fact. I find myself watching public broadcasting more and more because it's where I can actually get information. And of course, I've got the New York Times. I've got the Washington Post. I can read it online. And I, I can be better informed. And then how do you perceive these attacks in the United States on media? This is absolutely impossible also 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, well, it's, it's unprecedented, but what I find interesting uh, as well is that what we're seeing in terms of the situation unfold, the attacks from the President of the United States calling, uh, labeling the news fake news, the fake news media, and specifically calling out outlets such as CNN, such as the failing New York Times, as he likes to say, it's actually, in, in some respects, seen as benefiting those news organizations, the New York Times, subscription rates have gone up considerably. CNN's viewership, uh, especially immediately following the election, went up considerably uh, as well. I think the open question will be the long-term impact uh, of those, those attacks on the, on the media uh, and the implications for countries such as, such as this one, um, the precedent that it's setting. Um, I, I think that remains to be seen. I want to ask, you know, this is not just the, like a verbal attacks on, on the Czech television, you know, as a public media here by a number of politicians, including the president or the prime minister. Uh, but there is something I think even more serious happening, you know, that they are really trying to influence uh, the leadership of the Czech television. They are trying to put in their people. Can you, can you? Uh, uh, there is, we are just now in the situation that according to the Czech law, uh, we, every year present to the parliament two reports. One report of, of what we are doing, and the second one, how we, uh, what is our economic, um, economical situation. 
those two reports must be presented, one until the end of March, the second one until the end of August. And those reports must be finally confirmed by the Parliament. This is kind of, a, of control of Parliament on the, public, on the public media. If the Parliament doesn't approve two uh, reports in a row of the same type, like two economical reports, for example, for two years, it has a right to dismiss the whole, uh, the whole council of the Czech television. And one of the main, main goals of the council of the Czech television is that the council appoints the top, appoints the general manager and in a way appoint the top management of, uh, of the media. Now, and this is the funny situation, we have in the parliament altogether six those reports the latest one for 2016, two for 2017, and now two for 2018. And since a year, there are some, you know, thoughts about not approving those reports. If they don't approve those reports, they feel that they, may, they can make the changes in, within the, the, the Czech television. The problem is, that before the parliament should approve the report, there is a special committee within the parliament which tells the parliament what to do. And for all the reports which went through this committee, we have the advice of this committee to approve the reports. So the so, ones that are so, so pending, the, the pending reports have been approved by the committee. They exactly. Say, this e looks e on the mark to us. Exactly, exactly. But the politicians and are saying, they, well, wait, let's just wait on this. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, the and, they, and they are coming up, the, the problem is, they are, they are coming up with different stories, which are really, you know, misled. Uh, our problem as an institution is we cannot be there when they are discussing it, because we are not allowed to be there. So they discuss it within themselves. So this, this, is, this is the way how we, we wait already for oh, more than a year for this approval, and this is some sort of threat which they are trying to put on it. What I find extremely disturbing is that the president of the country repeatedly challenged the Czech parliament not to approve those reports. Uh, president of the country, which is, which is supposed to be completely independent, you know, on, on, or, or not get involved with public media whatsoever, is trying to basically, by his intimidating uh, challenges to the parliament, is trying to remove the management of the public media, which was legally elected and it was legally put in place. That would be such a mistake uh, to, uh, to bypass the rules, the existing rules of the parliament. It would be such a mistake and with the, you know, the pressure from the presidency, it just could be seen as a warning bell, a warning alarm, saying that there's political interference afoot. And I think, I hope, everybody in the Czech Republic understands that. Well, I, I think it also highlights the need for institutions that protect the media uh, within a country. Well, that's what the uh, parliament, that's how it's designed to work. Well, you know, an example of that would be um, something that happened last year, in November last year, in the United States. A CNN's chief White House correspondent, Jim Acosta, um, stood up and had an altercation with the president in the middle of a press conference. He asked a question, he asked a and question. he kept asking it, Someone tried to, get to an remove the microphone from him. He, ref I don't know what exactly happened there. But what, what ended up at the end of that, uh, the White House tried to strip him of his press credentials, and CNN sued the White House to have those press credentials reinstated. The courts ruled in CNN's favor, and also it was very important that Fox News, MSNBC, all of the other me uh, news outlets stood behind CNN, um, stood behind the principle of freedom of speech, First Amendment rights, and Jim Acosta now is has his press credentials back. He's able to continue covering the White House. So there were institutions in do you place. Have, do you have the support? That's very important, is it Aaron. I mean, do you have the support of the other media? Yes, we do. Uh, from most of, the, most of the media, we get support. And what is, what's the most important to us is we get support from the public. Because we are paid by the fee from the households, which means that we belong to the public. We don't belong to the politicians and the public sees the situation and we get support already since, since months. So we feel it and what we do, we try to bring analysis, bring figures, we are trying to be the transparent as, as much as we can. Uh, 
and we are ready to explain to anybody uh, what any, any questions they, they may raise. And we'll, we'll wait. Now the next, next, next discussion should come uh, to place in September, and it will come again. We'll see. Jim, Aaron, I want to ask you, we, we addressed some issues here uh, in the Czech Republic, in the United States, around the world. What is the solution? I mean, what, do, and are you optimistic this is going to end up well for media? Or is, you know, there will be another election, you know, in a couple of years in the United States. What is the solution to these problems, to these attacks? There, is, to this there isn't an easy solution. You know, it's one of those things that uh, is going to be interpreted differently from country to country, from situation to situation. And journalists have to do their part. The public has to do their part. But the politicians must also recognize that there's some areas of, I mean, we enshrine, in the US, the First Amendment, freedom of the press, is number one. And Jefferson said he'd rather have a free press than a government. Because if you can understand the issues of today, if you can understand the challenges of, uh, of the day, you can solve it. You know, one of the problems that we have in the U.S. is ratings, and everybody's living and dying by commercials uh, and by the numbers. And when you have public broadcasting, they don't live and die by those numbers. That's why they're so important. But what we've seen in the U.S. is that, well, as an example, during the election of Donald Trump, the president of CBS Les Moonves said, Donald, I, I, says, I don't know if Donald Trump is good for America, but he's damn good for CBS. And I hope he keeps going. Why? Because they were making billions of dollars off of this reality show star who was making a run for the presidency, insulting everyone, who was attacking immigrants, putting, scapegoating them as, you know, the black, brown, yellow, whatever. Those are the reasons that you, my friends, you know, are suffering today. Common scapegoating from day one in his campaign. Now, the problem has been that the 24-hour news networks, who, you know, you think, with 24 hours a day, you should be able to cover it all. Oh, no. Oh, no. They cover Trump. 24 hours a day. They repeat what he said. It may be controversial. Their coverage may be positive. It may be negative, depending on what channel you're watching. But it's Trump, Trump, Trump. You never hear about climate change in any major way. You never hear about uh, the problems of uh, uh, people living in rural communities. These stories are just they go away to make room for Donald Trump. CNN tried, they did try to cover some other stories at one point, but Jeff Zucker, God bless him for trying, found out that when he tuned out Trump, when he didn't put Trump in there as the story, the ratings went down. And so they went back to Trump. And it's extremely frustrating, and it raises the level of anxiety. Maybe it's just me, I don't know, but I think of a lot of Americans. It raises the anxiety level, and they're very sick of it. Are you optimist that this is going to end up well for CNN and for other networks in the United States around the globe? You know, will they survive this kind of wave of populism, you know, which, is, which we are seeing in the United States, in Czech Republic, in, in everywhere, uh, Brazil, everywhere? I think I can't help but be optimistic. I think that at the end of the day, people want to hear the truth. People want to be informed. People want to know the facts. They want uh, to know about the news that's happening in the world, in their media communities uh, as, as well. So I can't help but be a, an optimist because I believe in people, essentially. Uh, I think it's important, though, that journalists uh, continue to uh, operate with integrity, uh, to avoid sensationalizing the stories that they're reporting on um, to really try and build their reputations for fact-based journalism um, and, and continue from there. So I, I would say that I'm optimistic that at the end of the day, uh, real journalism uh, will prevail. With that, I would like to open the floor to the questions from the audience. There is, uh, can we have the mics, please? Thank you very much, thank you. Brilliant, interesting conversation. Um, 
Actually, I'm an ex-BBC and ITM reporter. I worked in Australia for the ABC, but a long time ago now. And I just want to make a couple of points, if I may. One is, uh, Jim, despite what you were saying, there's never been an era of objective news. It doesn't exist. It's, not, it's relatively impartial in public broadcasting. In, in Britain, for example, we have three public broadcasting-based news organizations. But it's not impartial. The news that's reported, and you said it, we decide what is important for people to see. Now, that means there's a lot of stuff that journalists, who all come from the same kind of uh, mindset, whatever their backgrounds, collectively decide the same stuff is important. And that means there's a lot of stuff they decide is not important, which many people out there believe is important and does not get reported in the old world. Now, of course, that's opened up, and there's a new world where those who decide other things are important can report it for themselves. That may be a good thing. And the second thing, of course, there is you said we should decide what the 15-year-olds want. The 15-year-olds aren't sitting watching linear television anymore. They're deciding what they decide is important, and that's changed. So, my, sorry, I, I, I just think that the, my question And the is, question is... Yeah. <laughs> quite right, but I thought they were two important points. The, uh, the, the question is... It, is this a good thing or a bad thing that we're opening up the uh, platforms for many more voices deciding what is news and what is not news? I, I think it's great news, you know, as long as it's not misinformation because it's sloppily reported or disinformation because it's purposely, purposely controversial and misleading, such as InfoWars, Alex Jones' site in the United States. You know what I mean? I mean, common sense tells us that when you have a news site that is saying that the parents uh, of the, the kindergarten and first graders that were gunned down at a school shooting in the U.S., saying that they faked the entire thing, it's not a credible, I mean, you know, it's, this isn't adding quality to the bandwidth. I think the bandwidth is great so that we can cover environmental issues and other things that are people uh, uh, are, are interested in. The internet provides a lot of that. But, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff out there as well. I mean, you have to take the good with the bad. And, and it's the responsibility of the viewers and the readers and uh, the online uh, viewers to make some smart decisions. We have another question, Derek. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, I wanted to ask about the social media because I was really surprised by the example. And what happened, I think, two months ago, so many people started turning their profile images to blue color. And suddenly there was all this information about Sudan and about all the crisis and what was happening there. So do you think that that's the future of, of social media that everybody will become a journalist and everybody will be sharing the news. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I, I buy into this idea that everyone will become a journalist. Um, I, I tend to regard journalism as, as, as an art form. Uh, so for example, you have the masters. Uh, so you have Picasso, right? You have, you have Rembrandt. And you, and you can go and you can admire their art as a masterpiece. Then you have me with my watercolors you know, scribbling away on the side, there's a very clear difference between the two. Uh, I think that everyone can play a part in journalism. Uh, they can be sources, uh, they can provide facts, first-hand accounts uh, on the ground, but I, I do believe that journalism is an art form that needs to be practiced and perfected and improved upon. Um, and, and I think social media can be a tool in that, um, but I do think there is a space for professional journalists uh, in the future and going forward. I 100% support this idea. Any Hello. next? I'm yes. Yes. Hello, I'm here behind the corner. Um, what comes about uh, public TVs, uh, in my view, um, there uh, is a like, growing uh, problem of legitimacy in the public. Uh, like, uh, like it was that uh, the public doesn't feel that the TV stands for them. Uh, um, even though we have uh, democratic institution that, uh, institutions that should uh, protect the TV um, in front of uh, politicians, um, I think uh, the public uh, support for the for the TV, which is uh, for them, uh, would be 
bigger if uh, the public uh, feels that uh, the TV fights for them. And uh, nowadays, uh, I, think, I think we can see all around the Europe in uh, uh, most uh, public TVs that uh, there's growing dominance of fun and relax, uh, that uh, we can see so many cooking shows and dance shows and uh, shows of uh, many kinds, but uh, I'm missing in programming uh, like the television coming to, to people, to variety of uh, groups, uh, to see uh, what is their life, how, uh, what are the problems, uh, how do live uh, single mothers, uh, how do live uh, factory workers, how do... Uh, live, uh, you know, what is the life in hospitals and everything. And I think uh, the, the life of normal, r regular people um, is missing in uh, current TVs. So uh, I wanted to ask if, uh, for example, in Czech TV you have any plan how to go back uh, to, the, to the public, uh, how to go back uh, to the people to get their support because uh, the TVs uh, would need it because uh, the politi politicians probably will not stop uh, with uh, what they are doing now. Okay. Thanks for the question. Uh, I don't agree with this perspective because I feel that the situation is that we as a public TV, we are, we are broadcasting for everybody. And you know, all the people in the country have different positions and different views. and. Uh, we try to be close to the people as possible, and one of the reasons why we are here, for example, is that we want to be close to the people. We want to get together with them. And uh, on the other hand, we are based on the principles which were written by BBC many years ago. So we want to inform the people, we want to educate the people, but we want to entertain the people because we are still the television. And we try to use maybe the same type of formats like the commercial TVs in a different way. And we try to build one thing which is, which should be, which should be, which should the viewer feel from our production. And this is the quality. We try to do, to bring the higher quality of drama to the people. We try to bring the higher quality of entertainment and we try to educate the people as much as we can. For example, we have a children channel, and the children channel works pretty well, and I just made a calculation, and 45% of all hours we broadcast are the education combined with the entertainment, because we want to educate the kids, but in the same time, we want to educate them in a way that they will like it. So we try to be close to the people, and frankly speaking, for the Czech television, we understand that the closer we are to the public, the more the public will defend us in front of anybody. So our plan is go more to the people, go to the regions, be with the people in different festivals like this. We were in Karlovy Vary. We expect to be in different other festivals throughout the summer. We expect to go in person to the people. Our news people will do a tour uh, throughout the fall, and they will discuss exactly the exactly the the, the things which we we discussed today. You know what are the fake news? Uh, what are the situation? What is the situation on social media? And we do it together with the universities. So we try to contact also the young people. We try to be in touch with them, and we do our best. Uh, never we we cannot we cannot be you know 100 percent. Uh, the TV of one person, but we try to be 100% the people of the nation. Thank you. Um, I think this question is just for, for Aaron and Peter. Uh, the, in the subject line of this was the word war. One of the tools of war is misinformation, disinformation. Your Jim Acosta story, you left out the most vital piece. The White House tweeted a doctored video of that moment. A few months later, we had Nancy Pelosi going viral, slurring her words in a drunken drawl, which was altered video. This is a Hollywood tool. It's attacking you, the press. This will not be the first, this will not be the last, this will be one of thousands and thousands of very difficult to verify 
pieces of videotape, audio tape. What is the media prepared to do to fight that war? Are you going to start? Are you going to relax the rules on anonymous sources? Are you going to? I mean, this is a huge battle coming. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and it's a, it's a battle to be fueled by that will be fueled by artificial intelligence, and as the technology behind those doctored videos becomes. Um, better uh, as AI strengthens, it'll be a huge it will be a huge challenge in the future, and I think it highlights the importance of established news networks that have the contacts, that have the sources, that'll be able to verify videos that are out there. Um, I think it'll make those uh, established organizations that much more important. Um, in the case of the, 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 the doctored video with Jim Acosta, in the case of Nancy Pelosi, the two the, the two examples that you mentioned, I mean, we as a news network called that out right away. I mean, we, we did entire segments showing how the, the videos were doctored, demonstrating to uh, our audience the technology that was used to doctor them. And, and I think that's a very important piece of the puzzle. I think we're going to have to see where the technology goes, uh, in what direction um, it moves, in order to, to develop a, a solid game, game plan in the future, but that, that is definitely a problem that will be facing journalists. But again, as I said, it'll make established news networks, uh, trusted sources of news that much more important. And uh, there, is, there are two principles which we should have in front of us. The first is fact-checking. So we should always do the fact-checking for any information we receive, and maybe to compare it to the other information which is in the air. And second, uh, we should be, and this is something which I always have a discussion with our news crews, we shouldn't be the quickest, we should be accurate. We shouldn't fight for the position to be first. We should fight for the position to be trustful. And sometimes we lose the game in the, first, in the first position, but if we present the information which is trustful, and if the people trust what we present, then we win the game. I also think, um, to add to that, I think social media platforms have a role to play as well. In the case of the Nancy Pelosi video, I believe Facebook declined to take down that video uh, to the outrage of Nancy Pelosi's office and, and, and many people who, who use Facebook. Um, what they did do was they highlighted the fact that it was fake. Um, but was, is that sufficient? I, I think that, that that's an open question. It's a debate that's happening now. How the big media giants that are also playing a larger ever-growing role in the media landscape, how they're going to be dealing with the information that's distributed on their platforms, on Facebook, on Twitter, and elsewhere. I think that needs to come under more and more scrutiny going forward, especially when you consider what happened in the 2016 election and beyond. Uh, we have uh, time for one more question. Um, do you think that the media environment from, uh, uh, from one environment or from one country uh, can help uh, uh, another media environment uh, from another uh, country or so, so I don't know uh, region, because for example um, in Taiwan uh, a lot of the media is being bought up by by, by uh, uh, let's say Chinese companies or Chinese money, and then uh, um, there was this uh, article I think it was in the Guardian that uh, citing the the former NATO boss that uh, the world or NATO should stand with uh, Taiwan because it's the only uh, Chinese democracy in the world, which I think is ridiculous. It's like saying, I don't know, uh, the US is a British democracy. And then a lot of media picked up uh, on this term, um, picking up this term and, and spreading it w without yeah. really yeah, thinking so what about is the it. question, please? Yeah, so do you think from your, from your experience, do you think one media environment can help another one, like the US can help a Czech one or something like that. I think if people come up with solutions, it can help. Uh, that's a possibility. What do you think, Peter? Uh, yes, and we believe, you know, in our case, we believe in the cooperation between the public media from all the world and mainly from Europe. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we are part of this European Broadcasting Union. And we get a lot of support from other countries, um, regardless if they come from the developed countries like, like UK or from less developed like, I don't know, uh, the former, former Yugoslavia countries. We try to cooperate together and we stick together and this helps learn from each other yeah and we, we try to learn from each other uh, last question a very last okay, question. A quick one I just was interested in if any of you would like to comment on this Julian Assange case uh, there's a lot of controversy now is he you know he's being persecuted or is that 
should should he be given more rights? Has he threatened the is the freedom of press being threatened because of him? It's a very controversial one. You know, I've thought long and hard about it. Uh, I, I am just worried about the level of his participation in helping to actually do the hack, to helping to encourage the release of uh, classified information. That's not the role of a journalist. If there is a person who has that information and it brings, them, brings it to a journalist, that's one thing. But I'm also troubled by Julian Assange. Has never, he's been offered, but he never seems to find his way and his ability to release any information, confidential information, from the Russian files. I thank you very much for coming. I thank all three guests who came from different parts of Europe and the United States for coming, and thank you for you for coming. Thank you.